changes to GPS approaches? What happened to CEO 20.7.4? And vet fee help and student loan dangers. Things to look out for. I discuss all these topics and more coming right up. So strap in and let's get into it. G'day everyone, I'm your host Trent Robinson and welcome to episode 54 of the Flight Training Australia podcast, the podcast all about flight training and flying in Australia and beyond. Lots has been happening this last few weeks in Ordinga, down South Australia, a great example of a wheels up landing in a barren there resulting in the pilot walking away safely. I'm not sure what the cause was um, or the need for so many landing attempts, but at the end of the day, whatever gets you down in one piece. If you haven't seen that one, I'll put it on the link description in the episode. Airshow cancellations due to the huge rainfall on the East Coast, which is always so devastating for the organisers. These things don't uh, come about just overnight. It takes months and even years of uh, preparation and uh, organisation. For the participants and fans, obviously not much can be done. And, of course, let's not forget that it piles into significance with others losing their homes and businesses. But they will be rescheduled. And as with COVID, we've just got to be patient. We do have, however, the Avalon Air Show coming next year, 3rd and 4th of March, as well as the Pacific Air Show on the Gold Coast, the 18th to 20th of August being announced. Details still sketchy, um, but they will start to come out as things firm up and uh, definitely two events to look out for and hopefully get to if you can. Welcome to my new Patreon fans. As always, it means the world to you guys coming on board and supporting me in the show, regardless of the uh, contribution. Welcome to Nick, learning in Moorabbin. Uh, he's ditching it for IT and uh, trying to get into an instructing job eventually, so good on you, Nick. Jaden getting back into commercial aviation and has been loving the podcast to help polish his knowledge and skills. And Josh also in Melbourne getting into his training. Thank you, everybody. Uh, you, If you'd just like to support the show, get a tax deduction at the same time, then have a look in the episode description, click on the support the show link and love to see you come on board. All right, so a few questions and uh, items that, again, just been coming up recently on flights that I've been doing and emails and messages from some of you that I thought would just be uh, good to touch base on and discuss. And the first one is for the IFR pilots, the GPS approach plate changes. So most of you keen-eyed listeners would have seen that your approach plates are changing, not so much the layout, but the names of the approach uh, plate itself and the waypoints within it. So if you're not sure what's going on there, the AIC is uh, your key to uh, what is happening there and what's going on. So the ones you want to look up for, and oh yeah, if you don't know what an AIC is, it's a a supplement or an addition to the AIP, so Air Services Publication, and it is Aeronautical Information Circular. Uh, So it's kind of like a NOTAM for news and updates about things changing, special events, um, military exercises, uh, air shows sometimes, uh, airport works, all that sort of stuff. So the ones you want to look up for uh, or look up are Hotel 03 
slash 21. So H03 slash 21. And also hotel H67 slash 20. So if we have a look at those, we'll see, um, first of all, H0321 is probably the quickest one to talk about first, and that's the change to instrument flight procedure approach chart identification from RNAV to RMP. And it will take you through into it. So I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but essentially it's just moving towards um, more consistent ICAO naming conventions. All right, so that'll take you through what's going on. It's a, a good little... Uh, one to look at, especially it's got a bunch of terminology in there. Starting to understand some of the new opportunities here. We're moving from just a basic GPS approach to all different types um, with all sorts of RMP capabilities and uh, implementing with ground-based and satellite-based stations. So have a read of that and that will take you through everything and definitely a good one to look, look at as well as the rollout for your various areas, which I think most have already... Uh, been taken care of, but there's still a sum to be to be done. So check that out. And all that simply means is that the name of the chart is changing. It's not really changing anything you need to do with the approach. The same goes for Hotel 67 slash 20, and this is our changes to the RNAV Waypoint Naming Convention. Um, again, processes have been identified that just the change of names need to be um, made. So Again, have a look at the plates for your area. You may see that the name has changed, but the waypoints are still the same or the other way around, or it could be both, that both the name of the plate and the waypoints have changed. So what has changed? Well, you'll see that there's a number now in the middle of the waypoints. So the way this is working is, in uh, in summary, is the first two letters are coming from the identifier of that uh, waypoint, the aerodrome code, could be navigate or any other combination. Right. The second is the letter, or the third is the letter. So starting from number two, it goes through to nine. Zero and one have been excluded. Not 100% sure why. If anybody knows, love to hear from me. So when an instrument approach procedure is revised or something's changed, then it will come from a two to a three and three to four and so on. All right. And then the last two are really exactly as they are now. So it could be like November Charlie, for example. That means it's a northerly orientated approach and it's waypoint number Charlie. So two letters, a number, and then two letters again thing with the first two letters is they may not really make sense. It doesn't change the name. It's not meant to be pronounced. So you might have uh, TH2NC. It's not meant to be Thetanik. All right. In that case, that's the one up here for Bathurst. Uh, so it's still Bathurst Island, November Charlie. All right. So have a look at that. Check those out. Read those two subs. It will explain everything for you and how it is all working. Very, very simple. All right. Um, what happened to CEO 20.7.4? So a lot of you will know 20.7.4 as a place you go to to find out all our performance criteria for single and multi-engine airplanes. Most single-engine pilots generally aren't aware of it. They usually just get told what to do. But if you've been adding 15%, to your takeoff landing charts, this is where that all comes from. 
For multi-engine, it's a bit more significant because there's more performance criteria where we've got maintain heights up to 5,000 feet for private ops, 1% climb gradient up to 5,000 feet for commercial, and missed approach criteria, go around criteria, etc. was all in there. Now, if you go look for CEO 20.7.4, you'll still see it in your list of CAO options, and it's all there in all its glory, written as it always was. However, if we go to the CASA website and have a look at the rollout uh, table for all the changes to the plates and things, we'll see that 20.7.4 has essentially been pulled and not replaced, it would seem. What's happened is for commercial ops, all right, so for 135 operators, it is now, along with many other things that will start to take this uh, concept, it's going to be put in your exposition. So essentially what Castro is starting to do now is rather than tell you how it's going to be, you get to decide and tell them. And as long as they're comfortable and happy, then they will approve your exposition and that's how you're going to operate. Now, the problem that that can sort of cause is if you're not familiar with the old way of doing things, it's a bit tricky to know what it exactly it is that you're meant to come up with so you know what to uh, mitigate against and, and, and planned risks. But from a private point of view and as an instructor, what do we teach for multi-engine and IFR? Now, the landing uh, chart factors are all there. They've all been moved across into the MOS, but some of these other ones haven't, all right? So if you're in charge and need to write an ops manual, um, this is the process. This is what's going on with it all. I would suggest that 20.7.4 forms a good benchmark. It's kind of like a, uh, a cap that it's an advisory publication, so you've got to have pretty good reason to go against it. But if you're in an area like, especially like we are up here um, in the Northern Territory, especially around Darwin, there's really nothing to hit. It's so flat until you hit Kakadu, and even then it's not that big. Um, do we really need to have to be able to try and climb up to 5,000 feet, especially in the heat? Um, some aircraft might find that difficult. So you might be able to risk mitigate uh, performance criteria of a lesser nature and just be able to get to 3,000 feet because that will cover any uh, elevation within, I don't know, the, the, the broad area that you fly in. So have a look at that. Uh, there'll be more info on that, but that's where it's gone. Um, that's how to approach that from a theory point of view. And I guess we'll all evolve how we do things. And if you've got any ideas on that, feel free to share them with me um, or comment on uh, the Facebook page. I'd love to hear your thoughts. All right, VET fee help, student loans. I'm sure you've all seen in the news lately that uh, the Box Hill Institute and Soar Aviation, uh, just a bit of the history there, they lost funding back in uh, January 30, 2020, due to complaints and really poor pass rates. Uh, government records, again, were indicating that in 2018 alone, more than $11 million in loans was paid out for 402 enrolments, with only six students actually graduating from the course. Um, I, uh, yeah, I don't even know how that can happen. Just this month, students are in line for a $33 million payout 
to subsidise the money they've spent in lieu of getting their fee help payments if it uh, gets through the Supreme Supreme Court. So what the hell happened and how do you avoid getting caught up in similar situations? Now, naturally, I'm going to be very careful here. I'm not going to name names and I'm not going to say that this is necessarily a bad thing. Fee help, when it first came out, was meant to be hailed as the saviour of general aviation. We all thought, how great is this? Uh, government's finally giving all this money. Everyone gets uh, hex debts, you know, well, not, not really such a debt, but hex loan, um, which I guess it becomes a debt, doesn't it? Uh, but yeah, anyway, hex debts for studying academic courses and th- your theory, doing all your degrees and things. But for students wanting to learn to fly, it was really hard. So here comes along some eighty to hundred thousand odd dollars uh, that you could put towards flying training, and every flying school we all thought, "Wow, this is going to be great! Finally, we've got students that can actually pay for their flying. We can get it done quickly, and it's a win for the students, and it's a win for flying schools." Well, I don't know, but I reckon how long how wrong we were. The problem with fee help, and again, I've touched on this before, is it's meant to be, and again, this is where what's happened in this situation I just can't fathom, but anyway, it's meant to be a very stringent system put in place to protect you, the student. Now, I know from my involvement, and I can't comment on other areas, but I know that when there's multiple entities, i.e. a educational institution, which is usually an RTO that or registered training organization that gets the fee help qualification, and then a third-party flying school provider. The students are owned by the educational institution or whoever holds the RTO and the fee help. So my flying school had a heap of students and a heap of money in the bank, but Unless the flying is being conducted, you can't draw down on the loan. So days go by, students don't fly, and if you've got no control over whether those students fly or not, it makes it very, very difficult. If you're working with the flying school that is in this situation, then there are um, cooling off periods where not much flying will be done because the way fee help works is you have to go past the census date. Once you pass that census date, or up until that census date, you can withdraw from the course. After that census date, then you're locked in and the money for that particular module or phase of training is deducted from your fee help loan. So think about this from a flying school point of view. Am I going to fly you in an aeroplane at many hundreds of dollars an hour at the risk of you walking away. You could do a bunch of flying up into the census date and then leave and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to lose money as a flying school. So therefore, this is usually where not a whole lot happens. The course gets thinned out and maybe a bit of ground school delivery gets done, but otherwise pretty much no flying. This introduces delays. 
All right. So this is one of the first problems. Again, it's not the uh, provider's fault necessarily. It's the nature of fee help and how it's constructed. Now, I haven't delivered fee help for a while, so I'm not 100% up to the latest um, setups, but I'm pretty sure this is all still in place. But how your course is laid out, if you're in like a three-year course, this is going to take forever. And this is potentially how we have all these students enlisted because they can all enroll at various times. But if there's not enough aeroplanes and instructors to go around to deliver this training after the census dates have all passed, then it's going to be an incredibly long, drawn-out process. Funds are going to get drawn down and um, or expire, and you're sitting there left with nothing. So how do you protect yourself? Well, again, the nature of fee help is that it's meant to protect you from companies going bust and from uh, flying schools, you know, abusing you, taking advantage of you and taking your money and leaving you with nothing. All I can really say is if you are looking at fee help, do your research on the education uh, institution, who is running the course, what support is given in that course. Again, I know I've had several of you contact me saying um, that you're just not getting anywhere. There's no one to ask questions. You're struggling with theory. Uh, you're struggling with the flying and it's just you're not keeping up and you're not being supported. And unfortunately, sometimes this is a side effect of this nature of this style of training. If you must, must do it because it's the only way you can afford to fly, then do your research, look up the company, check out the online forums. Most of them have been around for a while now and there's enough feedback going on from students um, that hopefully have all had great experiences and are happy with what's going on. Naturally, after COVID, a lot of schools struggled, staff have been lost and are gradually rebuilding now. That can be an unforeseen uh, outcome and lead to delays, sure. But ultimately, everyone should be able to service the students that they take on. That's what they're obligated to do and look after you. So check out the nature of the course. Find out how it's constructed, exactly how many hours you're going to get, the licenses, and understand how the course works. If you don't get a license by a certain point, you may get scrubbed. It may be difficult to get recognized prior learning and get back into the next phase. You may struggle um, to find those funds if you're on fee help in the first place. So make sure you understand fully what you're getting into. It's not just free flying. It's not just a loan, and it's not guaranteed that you'll get all the way through. The organization needs to set it up with a certain number of hours. And if you can't make it in that time, you may lose out. You'll also pay for hours you may not fly. Because again, the way the course needs to be structured, and this isn't the organization's fault. That's how it's set up. So look into it. Talk to the other students that are there. See how they're going. Check out online and make sure you understand and read all the fine print so you know exactly what you're getting into. And hopefully you'll avoid a rare, but not uncommon, there's been a few now, 
that have been abusing the system and hopefully we've uh, wiped most of them out of the way and only the good training providers are left which gives you the best chance you can to get your pilot's license and get out in the industry which is what we all want all right that's it for this week's episode thank you again for listening love hearing that feedback i was just having a look there over 159 five-star reviews on spotify spotify guys legends thank you um nearly 60 written reviews on apple podcasts even if it's not the platform you listen to you taking the time to leave me a review really helps the podcast be found uh it's spreading lots more people are finding it now which is great make sure you go through and, and check all the uh the episodes there not everything applies to everyone but there's some info there that will go a long way in helping you through your career through your flying and hopefully give you some great tips and pointers remember if there's something you'd like me to discuss a question or anything a topic someone uh, you might think might be a great interview uh, then please let me know info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au and you can also find me on instagram and facebook love to see you there all right guys until next week blue skies and remember the golden rule aviate navigate communicate cheers everyone <laughs>